Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Market Impact Insights. If you are trying to drive traffic to your website, if you're heavily invested in e-commerce, then search engine optimization, of course, is one of your cornerstone strategies and eye-popping statistics when you think about web searches today. Just looking at Google alone, recent research shows that there are more than 3.5 billion searches every single day. That's 1.2 trillion searches per year. And more than half, 55% of searches are on mobile devices. And only about 13% of websites are able to retain their same position for a particular search across all devices. So this is a very intense landscape. It's constantly changing. And I'm excited to talk to a true SEO expert today to get underneath what really drives success when you think about SEO from a B2B or from a B2C perspective. My guest, Eli Schwartz, is an SEO expert and consultant with more than a decade of experience working for leading B2B and B2C companies. His ability to demystify and navigate the SEO process has generated billions, that's right, billions of dollars in revenue for some of the internet's top websites. As the head of SurveyMonkey's SEO team, Eli oversaw the company's global operations. He helped launch the first Asia-Pacific office, and he grew that company's organic search from just 1% of revenue to being a key driver of global revenue. His work has been featured by TechCrunch, Entrepreneur.com, and Y Combinator, and he has given talks at business schools and at keynote conferences around the world. His book, Product-Led SEO, The Why Behind Building Your Organic Growth Strategy, uh, has become very popular, and you can learn a whole lot more at elishwartz.co. Eli, welcome to Market Impact Insights. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. You know, Eli, you've had an interesting uh, career path uh, and a transition. You, You started out on Wall Street, and then you moved into this field of SEO and marketing analytics. So was there something in particular that inspired that move? It was less inspired than circumstantial, but I I would say the motivations that had me interested in Wall Street are sort of the same things that really drive my SEO career. So the circumstantial part of it was that I always wanted to work on Wall Street and I was inspired by people that had not gone to college and they they seemed to really understand the markets and, and how to, you know, do well there and do well with other people's money. And I wanted to work in, in, on Wall Street. And then 9-11 happened and that sort of everything that I was doing would dried up. I went for, I was, a, I worked in the New York Stock Exchange as a runner and then I worked uh-huh. as a clerk and then I worked as a broker in a, a brokerage firm, all not wanting to go to college. And then the financial world imploded after 9-11 and I did go to college and I discovered marketing and I discovered that was as mysterious as Wall Street, but so much more interesting because there, it was, uh, you can understand individual behavior. I'd say in Wall Street, 
when you're trying to benefit from market swings and understanding, you know, where to, where to profit and where not to profit, you, you want to understand behavior, but you're understanding it in an aggregate. What I love about marketing is I'm trying to understand individual behavior and how that rolls up to the aggregate. But really, I love the individual part of it. And, you know, that that's my passion for SEOs. I would really, you know, awaken me to the, the power of SEO and how interesting this field could be is I, I started my own website. And this is uh, you know, probably almost 20 years ago. And I was able to see the exact things that people typed in and found my website. And this, these were in the log reports. Now this is, has been wiped away and you can't see this kind of stuff anymore for privacy reasons. And I was fascinated. I'm like, well, why would someone spell the word that way? Or why yeah, would someone yeah. be looking for that? And like, is, you know, that, that is, that's that transition to, you know, to where I am today. It, it is interesting, isn't it? It's like uh, millions and billions of individual stories, right? Down to, to, to an individual person and just what's motivating that behavior. It's almost like a, a psychology comes into it, right? Behavioral psychology. Absolutely. And layered on with the algorithmic part of it which is, you know, we'll get into this a little bit, but what SEO really is, is the search engines trying to understand each individual's person's needs algorithmically using AI saying, oh, I'm your, I Google would be saying, I'm your librarian. What can I find for you today? But they're using AI to do it at scale, but really that's what a search engine is. And when that happens for you and that magic happens, you search something, you're like, that's exactly what I was looking for. That motivates you to do more searches. Well, it just seems like there's so much possibility and potential out there uh, for companies that can really grasp and apply effective strategies. Now, you advise a wide range of B2B-focused companies. What are some of the common mistakes you see them making when it comes to them thinking about SEO or trying to go and execute strategies in support of their, their goals long-term? I think the biggest mistake they make is really a fundamental mistake, which is, should they even be doing SEO? So... I think I see a lot of companies that should not be doing SEO at all. Maybe, you know, just a, a tad and you know, just optimizing the website for their, their name brand when it comes to B2B. And the reason is, is because like we we're just talking about SEO is individual. They're individual people that are looking for things. And when it comes to B2B, not a lot of B2B products are sold the way consumer products are where an individual person is looking for a problem to a solution and then goes and searches it. So what that means is, let's say you have a very innovative B2B product, which helps you understand your analytics. And you're, you've been spending hours and hours on those analytics every day trying to make, put together a report. You don't know that there is a solution to you not spending hours and hours on putting together that report. So you're not Googling for a solution to it. Now, you could, of course, they can sell that B2B product to you. You can sell that analytics product to you by doing outreach and by playing a video or interrupting your social experiences with an ad. And then all of a sudden, you know that it exists, and then you may or may not Google it. But prior to that, you're not looking for it. So for a lot of B2B products, there isn't a search audience. So therefore, I wouldn't recommend that they do SEO. So that's the fundamental mistake, which is they're doing SEO because they think they need to, but they haven't really decided or figured out whether there is a person that is searching for them. Do you even be doing that SEO for? Yeah, yeah, interesting. And of course, even for those companies that have products that are appropriate uh, for SEO, defining who that audience is, you're trying to reach the buying audience and segmenting that audience. It's so foundational for effective marketing. What are you seeing out there and what makes this whole area of audience segmentation so challenging for many companies? 
again, I think it comes back to really not understanding the audience. You know, I, I'm a consultant. I work with a lot of really interesting companies on helping them to understand how they should be doing SEO and even if they should be doing SEO. And I find it fascinating that when I talk to public companies, you know, especially public companies, which you know, they have some sort of fiduciary responsibility to the, their investors to make sure they're doing this right. And I ask them who their audience is and, and what their personas are and why they want to do SEO. And they don't know because it's not their job. The person's job to, you know, it was not that I'm talking to, it wasn't their job. It's not some, you know, someone else's job, but that person's job is not to figure out SEO. And that all doesn't come together. So when it comes to the understanding the audiences, they don't know. So they're just doing things to do things. Now, a small business knows exactly who their customers. You know, think back to like, you know, the, the days of small mom and pop stores that served a single neighborhood or, or, or served a you know, single block even. They know their customers. They know, you know, what, what happens when their customer comes in. This person wants coffee with milk and this person wants a, you know, a donut. Yep. This person buys cereal every other day. Like they understand their customers. And now as we scale up on the internet, we've sort of lost that. We can find it in analytics and we find data points and create cohorts and, and you know, use big buzzwords. We don't really understand the customer in the sense that you want to build marketing around that customer. I find that a lot of times we're just doing things to do things. Where this becomes so important for SEO is because SEO is a, and they say this about a lot of marketing, but it, I think it's especially true with, with SEO. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And what that means is, if you decide today in May that you're going to be doing SEO, you're going to be building a new SEO effort or a new product you're launching, you may not see the real results for that until May of 2023. Now, if you do the wrong thing in May of 2023, you'll suddenly figure out you're not getting the results you expected because you've built the wrong thing a year ago. So that's why understanding the audiences are so important. If you do this in paid marketing and you accidentally mess up your audience and you, you, you know, your settings are wrong, you overspend, you overspend by a day and you go and fix it. With SEO, it's, it's a really long process and understanding your audience and understanding who you're targeting is critical. Yeah, that's interesting too. With just the huge volume of data points, Eli, that are available out there, I and I've seen it in, in the organizations I work with, but I'm sure you've seen it as well, where it's not just about getting as massive volume of data points, right? You can end up swimming at a lot of numbers and data, but it's really the focus on what's truly important. And I think that interpretive analytics, uh, have you seen that uh, be uh, really critical? Yeah, but I think when it comes down to strategic marketing, especially around SEO, you don't want to get too lost in the weeds of analytics. I think you want to really understand your user. And I actually prefer that customers do surveys and talk to actual users and build strategies around actual users rather than looking at analytics. You know, there have been some companies I work with who they look at their analytics and it tells one story for year over year. But last year's story is different because last year was a COVID recovery or uh, maybe a COVID wave. And now, now things are different. So if you're looking at analytics, you may understand one thing from the data. But if you talk to your customers, you'll suddenly understand them completely differently, that you understand them more holistically as people that you can now build marketing around them that is effective in 2025 as it is effective in 2022. Yeah, I love that. It just adds the the greater texture to it and the human factor by just expanding and, and going direct to, to the source. That makes a lot of sense. Now, your book is focused on this idea of product-led SEO. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What, what really is it all about? 
Yeah, so I, I sort of accidentally coined this term and I'm thrilled that people are now using this term in, in job descriptions, in uh, their job titles. I searched on LinkedIn, there are a lot of people saying that they're product-led SEO experts and I, I love that. Where I, I coined this term because I was looking for a way of encapsulating something different than the way most people do SEO. So the way most people do SEO is they're selling insurance, for example, and they'll go to a keyword tool and the, you know, any keyword tool out there, it doesn't really matter, they're kind of all the same. And they'll tell them that the most important keyword they want to use for SEO is insurance, maybe car insurance, if that's what they sell. And maybe if they sell car insurance in, uh, in, in New Mexico, use the word car insurance, New Mexico, and so on. And that's what that's what's going to be their focus from a keyword standpoint. And they'll go and build a bunch of content around it. And that's what they call SEO. They may or may not get traffic and you know they'll try to convert that traffic. I like to think of SEO more holistically, like we were just talking about. Who is my user and what does my user need? And how do I individually as a company or a product, how do I solve that problem for them? And build my SEO like that. So instead of looking at the queries people are looking at, I'm looking at the intent that people are looking at. But what I, I really think there's upside is when you think about the intent at scale. So I really want to understand my users and I'm going to build an entire product suite around them. So as an example, I was talking to someone at a conference recently and she mentioned to me that she has a food blog and she's building out food blog uh, content just like all of her competitors are and she's creating recipe content just like all of her competitors are. They're not even her recipes. So how does she differentiate the SEO she does? What she's doing is content-led SEO. She's looking at keywords, you know, a food item and then building SEO around that food item primarily just around the name of that food and she asked what would product-led SEO be there so I showed her if you did a search in the names of the foods there's suggested queries around cholesterol content there's suggested queries around uh, caffeinate the caffeine if there's caffeine in some of those foods so as you see that over and over on each of these foods you suddenly realize this is a product you can create at scale. You create something that measures the, the cholesterol content of an entire library of food or category of food. So that's a product. You're not just building one piece of content and hoping that one piece of content ranks and, and is visible in search. You're building an entire, I call it product, but it's a web product around a customer need, which is I want to understand if this food is healthy for me and I'm going to build it for every single food. Some of the foods I may win on and some I don't, but in aggregate, I'm going to drive a lot of traffic and a lot of user value from that. The example I use in my book, which is you know maybe easier to understand for most people is Zillow. So rather than Zillow, focus on one person's house, let's say Joe Biden's house in Delaware, because that's something people might be looking for out of curiosity and they're going to build a piece of content around that. They put the same effort into Joe Biden's house that they put into Barack Obama's house in Chicago and Mark Zuckerberg's house in California. So they really just built SEO into the actual product. And that's SEO is actually the only way you're going to find most of these because they're not going to drive pay traffic to it. Who would advertise to these individual pages? So they built an entire product suite. The entire Zillow is really around SEO and building what people are looking for and how people are going to find it. Yeah, it is amazing as you were talking about bringing it back to the customer, customer needs, uh, that is the driver, you know, and from marketing from, from so many different lenses. And then even from an SEO perspective, I really like how you've um, framed it, uh, a focus on need first, focus on that intent. Uh, that's really important. And the other important thing, and a lot of time and energy Eli has spent around measuring things, right? In marketing, we like to say that we, it's not just qualitative we're quantitative. Um, we're going out. 
uh, KPIs, right? It's kind of the buzzword. Uh, we're going to measure and then we're going to learn. Um, what's your perspective on where that comes into play when it comes to an effective SEO strategy? So I think an SEO strategy, and hopefully this came through in my earlier statements on SEO, is really around KPIs, around a business KPI. Ideally, it's revenue, but it could also be downloads. It could be awareness, but it's something that matters to the business. So just like every other marketing effort has, is doing something that matters for the business, SEO should be something that matters to the business and not just, I want to be visible on Google. I want to be highly ranked. I want to get clicks. It should be something that is driving business value. So knowing how that passes through, knowing that someone clicked on this page because it was visible on search and then they converted and it drove this amount of revenue is critical, especially if you want to continue getting investment in this category. One place, one thing that's challenging is there's a fundamental lack of understanding about where SEO fits in the funnel. So when it comes to other marketing channels, say an advertising marketing channel, it's assumed to be in the bottom of the funnel where if I advertise, people click and now they're going to buy and I know that the advertising worked for me. SEO isn't really like that. Depending on the product, especially a B2B product, you may just be opening up the conversation at the top of the funnel. So if you have these clear metrics and a way of understanding how the SEO traffic is performing for you, you'll know that you were found by someone searching and then that passes the buck on maybe to email. They signed up with their email list and the email team can continue to email them, remind them you exist. And then it may be passed on to the pay team who can do retargeting and continue to chase this person around the internet. And then as a final piece, they may Google the brand and then click the brand and that's how they convert. So knowing that SEO helped open up that conversation will give you the ammunition to prioritize and generate capital and investment towards SEO. If you all you're doing is tracking that last click, you'll never know that. Hmm. Now, when you consult with your clients, you know, you think about focus short term to long term and strategic it feels like, you know, you have measurements that are very micro and micro increments of time, very short term, but then there's this longer view. You mentioned it earlier that there's this uh, long-term effect when you were talking about the product-led SEO. What, what's your perspective on just where companies should focus? Is it really a blend? You've got to have the right short-term along with long-term or make sure not to overlook um, taking a longer uh, time horizon? I think with SEO, it, it's mostly longer term hard time horizon. You're building a product. You're building something for the future. And if all you're doing is expecting it to, to work for you right away, then you're going to giving it, you know, give the short end of the stick and you'll stop investing it. So if you realize you're building a product, and I know that it requires having conviction. It requires, and that's why I like having this customer conversations. You know that people are going to be looking for you. They're not finding you yet today, but you are. you have conviction that you're building the right thing and you, you stay on course and you continue to build. And I've seen this over and over. There's a company I just talked to, gave them a suggestion three years ago. They thought it was crazy and they, they trusted me on that suggestion and they started building to it. Six months later, they said it didn't work. And I just you know caught up with them again three years later and this is driving a quarter of all their revenue. So it is longer term. It is a long-term investment. I was convinced that this is the right place for them to go. They weren't convinced, but based on what they shared with me, I felt that there was a there there and they did it. So this is absolutely a long-term view. And the best part about it is if you take this long view and you build, you now have a really good competitive moat between you and anyone else that wants to copy you because you're first. And in many cases, you have a lot of you know time where you have been first. You have a year, you have two years, 
really can't catch up to you. Yeah, what I heard there was just having that intestinal fortitude to just stick with it. Uh, and that's tough, especially, you know, you mentioned you work with some publicly traded companies, right? There's pressures on quarterly results and short term. So sometimes I could see where there's kind of this uh, conflict, right, uh, on, on willingness to stay the course. Uh, but it can pay off if you do that. So uh, you've worked in a lot of different high growth and in and around high growth companies. Uh, you mentioned a few of those earlier. Innovation is such an important driver uh, when you are uh, growing. Uh, and what's your perspective on what you've seen are the key ingredients in the building and sustaining a truly innovative culture? I think, you know, I've seen a lot of companies. You know, I've seen small companies and, you know, like you said, I work with publicly traded companies. I think innovation has to be rewarded. And I, I've been in, in cultures where if you do something and you stray out of your lane, you get slapped down. That's not your job. And that encourages people to stay in their lane and not do anything out of their job. And if they are ambitious and they are innovative, they're probably going to look elsewhere outside the company. So I think if innovation is rewarded, both from a comp structure, that's a great idea, or maybe a job satisfaction structure where, well, that's a great idea, we'll give you three months to work on that, or here's an opportunity to work cross-functionally. I think it inspires people to want to do things. And if you hold up those examples of people being innovative, other people want to copy them too. And I'd say from all the companies I've seen, the dysfunctional ones are the ones that are very siloed and very territorial when it comes to this is your job and this is not your job. And I think the ones that are most successful are the ones where anyone can talk to anyone. There's you know less of a hierarchical structure around this is your boss and you can only go up through your boss, but you can work cross-functionally. And it's been great to see how this played out over COVID where people are at home and you couldn't go have that side conversation over lunch. And the, those that were really successful at building bridges and allowing people to build those bridges were you know, the companies themselves were successful. And I did consult for companies you know over COVID where you know, the Germany office wasn't talking to the U.S. office and they were both doing the exact same thing. And I've talked to companies over COVID where, you know, you had two people in the same city and they were figuring out how to get together over COVID and, and, and you know, do things that were very effective. So it really comes down to people at the top wanting to reward this and, and motivate innovation and not just use the words. Yeah, it's around that uh, collaboration, communication, transparency, all of that important stuff. Now, you do a lot of advising and you're a consultant to many different companies. Uh, Eli, I'm going to flip it around and ask you, what's the most impactful piece of business advice you have received? You know, there's so many people that have, have you know, shared so much with me and, you know, sometimes things sound great. The one thing that I think has been impactful for me is when I was told to, you know, never really give, essentially give everyone a chance. You never know how someone will be in a position to work with you or help you, or you can help them in the future. And, you know, the longer my career extends, the more I can see that, the more I can see how someone I had a conversation so long ago and was an intern is now in a position as a VP and is in a position to hire me for consulting or, uh, I was, you know, an intern and someone was respectful to me and now I'm in a position to help that person back. And I think, you know, it, 
culture nowadays where everyone is is busy and they don't want to make time for meetings i feel i've gotten so much out of the relationships i built by just giving everyone a chance by you know talking to anyone and you, you know it's been amazing to see again the, the people i were peers i was peers with they're now ceos and presidents and vps and you know i'm glad that i i didn't say oh no you're you know, you're, you, uh, you got a degree in, in liberal arts and I got a degree in business and we shouldn't be talking, but really, you know, give everyone a chance, have a conversation with anyone. I, I accept anyone's connections on LinkedIn and, you know, I'm always happy to have a conversation with anyone. Can't say I'm going to jump on a Zoom call with every single person, but I'll answer every email that is ever sent to me. Again, provided there's no outright spam intent. Yeah, you're right. Well, it's investing in relationships. You just never know where those yeah. uh, can go. And it's just amazing possibilities that uh, come about there. Well, there's obviously a lot going on in our world right now, uh, in our financial markets, from a business perspective, from a competitive perspective. And there are probably a lot of reasons that we could be pessimistic. But when you think about the future, Eli, what makes you optimistic? So I'll speak to just SEO because I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the world. I think we, you know, certainly seeing a decline in globalization, decline in uh, you know, personal relationships. That's not my expertise. When it comes to SEO, and I like to see people using technology and searching more and more. I think that SEO and search has become incredibly helpful to people, so much so that we want to put devices in our houses that allow us to search more with, you know, assistant devices. And our phones are even more useful than they are before. And Amazon is currently the only one with glasses. And I think that Google's going to have glasses and Facebook's going to have, you know, glasses and everyone's going to have glasses where you can do searches and really conduct uh, and, and interact with technology more. And I think that SEO is so helpful and required for this kind of thing. You know, I, I, we didn't define this earlier, but really what SEO is, is search engine optimization. All you're doing is optimizing your ability to show up on search. There's no magic sauce there. And if you don't optimize yourself just for search, you're just leaving this to luck. So as people do more and more searches, there's more opportunities for, for companies to be found, for more opportunities for products to be found. And it's not about, I just need to be visible on the single keyword I'm obsessed with. It's I need to be visible for the users that are looking for me when they're looking for me. And there's more opportunities for them to look for us as the technology goes into more places. I'm sure we'll have a massive backlash against, do we need a technology break? But we're not there yet. As much as people say we're on our phones too much, we're on our phones too much. No one is saying like I'm locking my phone up and you know there's not a huge movement to lock up phones just yet. So Eli, you're saying you don't have your own personal lockbox where you put your device away and 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 put a timer on it? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, the <laughs> only thing I don't give away to search engines is I don't give them my sleep time. Explicitly give them my sleep time. I have a Fitbit. So I don't wear my Fitbit to sleep, so they don't know exactly when I'm sleeping. But I do have Google Home devices all over my houses, all over my house. So Google knows probably when I'm quiet and when I'm not, despite the microphone being off. I think that's good. I think, you know, regardless, they're going to know things about us. So I might as well benefit from the technology they have. Sure. Well, as we start wrapping up the conversation, Eli, do you have any other final advice for companies that are looking to achieve competitive advantage and long-term growth? I, yeah, really a focus on long-term growth. I don't care about competitors when it comes to SEO. I think if you, all you do is copy your competitors, you're always going to be behind them. Motley Fool uh, produces 120 pieces of financial content per day. If someone decides they want to go 
into the financial content space, they need to catch up to 120 pieces of content per day. Not only that, they need to catch up to 10 years of 120 pieces of content per day and then outpace Motley Fool today to do that. But if you have a, an interesting thing to offer in the financial space, find your angle. Don't copy fool.com, don't copy Robinhood, don't copy Yahoo Finance. I think there's so many things you can do if you just get creative. And like I, I said multiple times, talk to your customers, understand what they're looking for. If you're a venture funded business, there's a reason that the venture capitalists and the investors were inspired to give you the money. And that's what you should build strategies around and SEO strategies around, not copying others, but really understanding your users and building for users and thinking about what are my users going to want from me in 2025 and what can I build for them and not think about what, you know, what do my users need from me today and I'll build for them today because if it's that easy, anyone can do it. Yeah, that's some really sound advice, you know, chasing competitors. It's just so easy to lose your own way, right? Forget about what your special sauce is because you're too externally focused around those other competitors. Well, Eli, thank you again for coming and sharing uh, your perspective on search engine optimization and what really drives successful outcomes there. You've given us a lot to think about. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this conversation. It's great to be one of your guests. And a reminder to everyone to continue to give the gift of feedback. Let us know what you like about this podcast. You can rate and review. It's very easy to do. Go out to any of the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, let us know what you think. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.